On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Today our topic is Holy Pilgrimage. We actually composed this, uh, these thoughts uh, soon after we made a pilgrimage to the Shanti Ashrama in California, where Swami Turiyananda had stayed and Swami Trigunatitananda. And so I'd like to share some thoughts about the place of pilgrimage in our spiritual life. We call it holy pilgrimage because it's a, a journey to some holy place with some uh, spiritual objective, a place of spiritual inspiration, and to differentiate it from what we might call secular pilgrimage. Devotees of Elvis Presley will make a, a, a pilgrimage to Graceland. And they'll call it a pilgrimage also. Or uh, scholars of Shakespeare, they will go to Stratford-upon-Avon and make a pilgrimage to the birthplace of the great poet. That's not quite what we mean uh, about our holy pilgrimage. That's not our subject. But undertaking a journey with a spiritual purpose as a part of our sadhana, our spiritual practice. That's what uh, we'll take up today. We find that pilgrimage is a practice undertaken by the followers of near about all the religions. For instance, for Buddhists, there are four particular places which are most holy. The birthplace of Buddha, the place where he attained his illumination, that is Bodhgaya, the place where he uh, delivered his first sermon in Sarnath, where he set the wheel of Dharma rolling, and the place where he left the body, attained Mahaparinirvana in uh, Kushinagar. And Buddha himself had recommended pilgrimage to these places. So if we go to these places today, we find thousands of Buddhist pilgrims. And there are other, many other sites in Buddhism, like the Tooth Temple in Sri Lanka. A single tooth of Buddha was preserved and is enshrined in a temple in Sri Lanka, and that attracts so many uh, pious pilgrims. In Islam also, uh, the Hajj, the, the pilgrimage of Islam, is a, one of the five pillars of Islam. Every able-bodied Muslim who can find the, has the means is required by uh, the rules of the 
faith to undertake the pilgrimage once in a lifetime. And, of course, Jewish people in ancient times, they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple there, and uh, now still they visit the site and pray at the wall which remains of the temple. And for Christians, of course, Bethlehem and Jerusalem are special places of pilgrimage, the places where Jesus was born and where he taught and died. And uh, for Roman Catholics, Rome is another great destination of pilgrimage. In Europe, in the Middle Ages, there was a beautiful tradition of pilgrimage, which reminds us of the Indian tradition. Pilgrims would go on foot for many months to various places of pilgrimage. Even today, there's a the very famous place of pilgrimage in France, Lourdes, where five million people in a year visit the place. These are places where saints lived, where saints died, where people had visions of God or visions of the mother of God, as they call it, Mother Mary. And in Latin America, this tradition is very much living. For instance, in Mexico, the Virgin of Guadalupe attracts 20 million pilgrims in a year. 20 million. So it's, it's quite a living tradition. But when we come to Hinduism, we find that it is in Hinduism that uh, the institution of pilgrimage is most deeply ingrained. Pilgr Hindus, every Hindu longs for uh, Tirtha Yatra, a holy pilgrimage. And I think many of us, probably most of us, have undertaken pilgrimage at some point in our lives. India is really a great holy land, a land of sacred geography, we can call it. Tirthas, or holy places, are found in every corner of the country, from north to south and east to west, both ancient holy places and new holy places. Kedarnath to Rameshwaram, Dwaraka to Puri, Amarnath to Varanasi, Vrindavan to Dakshineshwar, all the holy places associated with various aspects of the divine. We have Shakti Pitas associated with the Divine Mother, Jyotirlingas associated with Shiva, uh, sacred rivers, places where avatars unfolded their divine play, like Vrindavan and Dakshineshwar, and the holy rivers, Ganga, Yamuna, Narmada. Many of these places are in spots of great natural beauty, by a body of water, by a lake, a river, or the sea, or on a beautiful mountain, in a cave, on an island perhaps. And Tirtha actually refers to a place with water, though now it is applied in an informal way to any holy place. But the original meaning of Tirtha is a place with water, where two or three rivers come together the Hindu builds a temple. Where a beautiful mountain vista opens up, the Hindu builds a temple. However, a tirtha becomes a tirtha, becomes a holy place, not by virtue of natural beauty, not 
simply through the existence of a temple there, but through its association with great saints, through the spiritual practices that have been undertaken there, through the spiritual realizations, the illumination that has been attained there, through the spiritual vibrations that we experience there. These are, these are what make a place a tirtha. One of Swami Vivekananda's disciples asked him about this fact of spiritual vibrations. He asked him, Sir, the Shastras tell us of various special influences attaching to places of pilgrimage. How far is this claim true? Swamiji replied, When the whole world is the form universal of the eternal Atman, Ishwara, what is there to wonder at in special influences attaching to particular places? There are places where he manifests himself specially, either spontaneously or through the earnest longing of pure souls. And the ordinary man, if he visits those places with eagerness, attains his end quite easily. Therefore, it may lead to the development of the self in time to have recourse to holy places. Sri Ramakrishna explains it this way. He says, Look, know for certain that there is a special manifestation of God where for a long time many people have practiced tapas, concentration, meditation, japa, prayer, and worship in order to attain his vision. Their devotion has caused a spiritual atmosphere to solidify in that place, so one can easily become spiritually awakened and have a vision of God there. Throughout the ages, many monks, devotees, and perfected souls have visited sacred places to see God and call on him wholeheartedly, shunning all other desires. That is why there is a special manifestation of God in those places. However, God exists everywhere equally. If one digs deeply enough, one can find water in any place. But one doesn't need to dig for water where there is a well, pool, pond, or lake. One can get water there at any time. It is like that. So this explains the holiness of a place and why we should want to go there. One can easily get spiritual inspiration, God vision, as there is a special manifestation of the divine in those places. People undertake pilgrimage for a variety of reasons. Some undertake pilgrimage for punya, getting some merit. There's an idea that we have a, a bank account and we can put uh, credits and debits into that account. Our punya is our credits and our papa is our debits. Our sins and merits, they go into the bank account. So people go on pilgrimage to uh, get some punya, which will, perhaps they feel it, it will give some good benefits in their life, in this life or in the life to come. Then prayas chitta is uh, expiation of sin. People make uh, pilgrimage for expiating sins. 
or in fulfillment of a vow, seeking a, some kind of boon. In, there are some, one pilgrimage which is considered a duty, that is the performing the shraddha, the funeral rites for one's ancestors in Gaya. That is a uh, traditional pilgrimage made to fulfill one's duty. And for healing from illness is a common aim of pilgrimage. I remember visiting a church in New Mexico, a small church, uh, and it was a place of pilgrimage. The people would come and take some soil from the basement, or there was one room where the soil was exposed, and they would take a little bit of that soil. And the whole wall of that room was covered with canes and crutches and braces and even a wheelchair or two, all kinds of implements that people had left there upon getting cured from some uh, disability. But spiritual aspirants who are struggling to break free from the limitations of the body and mind, who are struggling to gain illumination, struggling to attain God vision, they go on pilgrimage to heighten their devotion, to purify their minds, to get a glimpse of the divine. Illumined souls also go on pilgrimage. Swami Saradananda writes, The scriptures say that perfected, illumined souls visit places of pilgrimage in order to intensify the sanctity and spiritual atmosphere of those places. Because these perfected beings go to those places with longing hearts, seeking a more vivid vision of God, God becomes manifest there in a special form, or the presence of God becomes more palpable than before. Then, when others visit that holy place, they experience this divinity more easily. So illumined souls go on Tirtha at least partly, in order to add to the holiness of holy places. And this applies to us as well. When we visit a holy place, it is not enough for us only to take, only to receive the blessings of the place. We can also contribute to the holiness of a place by our prayer, our <coughs> japa, meditation, our holy thoughts. Swami Vivekananda warns us of a misconception about pilgrimage. He says, people have become so degraded in this Kali Yuga that they think they can do anything and then they can go to a holy place and their sins will be forgiven. If a man goes with an impure mind into a temple, he adds to the sins that he had already and goes home a worse man than when he left it. Tirtha is a place which is full of holy things and holy men. But if holy people live in a certain place, and if there is no temple there, even that is a tirtha. If unholy people live in a place where there may be a hundred temples, the tirtha has vanished from that place. And it is most difficult to live in a tirtha. For if sin is committed in any ordinary place, it can be easily removed. But sin committed in a tirtha cannot be removed. So some sobering thoughts 
from Swami Vivekananda. Who is entitled then to make a pilgrimage? Are there any qualifications for a would-be pilgrim? While anyone can make a pilgrimage, not everyone will benefit from pilgrimage. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, one who has it here, has it there. One who has it not here, has it not there either. That is, the essence is here within. If one has devotion, shraddha, faith, yearning within, one will have it wherever one goes. And then only will pilgrimage be helpful. Then only can we catch the vibrations of a place. As Sri Ramakrishna would say, for one endowed with devotion in one's heart, in a holy place of pilgrimage, that devotion is enkindled all the more. But what special benefit can one gain if one has not that devotion in the first place? Mahindra Mukherjee, one of Sri Ramakrishna's devotees, wanted to go on a pilgrimage, and he told Sri Ramakrishna so. Sri Ramakrishna replied, How is that? Do you want to go when the sprout of divine love has hardly come up? First comes the sprout, then the tree, then the fruit. We are so happy to have you here to talk to. Again, he told Mahindra, the divine love in you is barely a sprout now. Why should you let it wither? But come back very soon. Evidently, Sri Ramakrishna didn't think Mahendra would be very much benefited by pilgrimage. His devotion was not matured enough. And, of course, Sri Ramakrishna knew that he would be more benefited by being in his presence. To Pandit Shashadhar, Sri Ramakrishna said, What is the use of making pilgrimages if you can attain love of God remaining where you are? I have been to Banaras and noticed the same trees there as here, the same green tamarind trees. Pilgrimage becomes futile if it does not enable you to attain love of God. Love of God is the one essential and necessary thing. And that reminds me of the song that Sri Ramakrishna used to sing often. Uh, Why should I go to Gaya or Ganga, to Kanchi Kashi or Prabhas, so long as I can breathe my last with Kali's name upon my lips? Gaya, Ganga, Prabhas, that, that song, all the famous holy places. So... we can understand that while pilgrimage may not be absolutely necessary and it won't be helpful for us until we've got something within, yet we will also find how Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda and other, so many other great saints themselves went on pilgrimage. So we also find that we may gain some benefit when preparing for pilgrimage, one must, of course, find out the route, perhaps get a guide, plan one's travel, make uh, travel arrangements, pack one's bag, and all such external preparations. But the main preparation for pilgrimage is mental. 
is internal. We have to think about the pilgrimage. We have to kindle the flame of yearning in the heart. Perhaps we'll do more japa and prayer, prepare ourselves to come face to face with the divine. We have not far from Washington a place of pilgrimage connected with Swami Vivekananda that is Ridgely Manor in upstate New York where Swamiji stayed on several occasions including once he stayed for six weeks. So if we are thinking to make a pilgrimage to Ridgely Manor we might prepare ourselves by reading about the place in uh, Sister Gargi's books, Mary Louise Burke's books, there is a lengthy description of his stay there and how he was in an extraordinarily exalted state of mind there in Ridgely. We can then also read about how he taught and trained the disciples there, how he uh, performed some sadhana there, how, and what letters he wrote from Ridgely. We can read all these things. And this is a way of preparing ourselves for a pilgrimage to Ridgely Manor. If we go there without knowing anything, we heard, oh, well, Swamiji went there once, and okay, that's good enough for me. We won't benefit in the same way if we really study it, think about it, imagine how he used to stay there. Then when we go, we can see the same couch which Swamiji used to lie on every day. We feel something. We feel something when we do it that way. So finally, the journey of our pilgrimage begins. Traditionally, pilgrimage were made, pilgrimages were made on foot, and fortunately, some still are. In 1824, 12 years before Sri Ramakrishna's birth, Sri Ramakrishna's father, Kudiram, made a pilgrimage from Kamarpukur in Bengal, West Bengal, in the north of India, all the way to Rameshwaram at the very southern tip of India, on foot, going the whole way on foot. The whole trip took about a year, and he must have walked nearly 3,000 miles during that year. He would stay in dharamshalas, that means guest houses for pilgrims, rest houses, or with pious villagers, and simply he was a poor Brahmin, he had no money, he would simply beg his food as he went. This is one of the glories of India, which, at least in the villages and the rural parts, still exists today, this support for the poor pilgrim and the monk. If a poor pilgrim or a monk comes to the householder's door, the householder will consider it a great privilege to be able to serve that person. Now, with modern transportation, it's much easier. Pilgrimage is much easier. And there is, of course, something gained from this. We can all make pilgrimages. Even the elderly and infirm and ailing can visit, uh, go on pilgrimage. We can visit many places of pilgrimage rather than just one. But something is also lost. There is something about the journey itself as sadhana the joy of the struggle to reach the destination. And as those of you who have done a pilgrimage like this know, when walking together with many pilgrims, there is a camaraderie which develops among the uh, pilgrims, a wonderful feeling of uh, union 
we're all walking together to come face to face with the Lord. Even with modern conveyances, the journey can be taxing, especially in India, with Indian buses in the Himalayas. Uh, this, the difficulties of the journey act as reminders to keep our minds on God, reminders to keep the aim of our pilgrimage before us. And the, a few of the pilgrimages which are still on foot, like the Amarnath pilgrimage, Gomukh, the source of the Ganges, Kedarnath, it's quite uh, stressful to make the walk up to Kedarnath. But with each step, the pilgrims take the Lord's name. When they, they greet other, name, other pilgrims with the name of the Lord, Jai Kedar Baba Ki Jai, Jai Ganga Mai Ki Jai, the name of the deity to which uh, we are struggling to uh, reach. So this struggle is a purification of the mind, and it intensifies the longing to reach the goal. The dangers on the path, when, when there's a thousand-foot drop uh, uh, to the side and the path is just two feet wide, and one is climbing up to the uh, source of the Ganges, one keeps the name of the Lord on one's lips. Automatically it comes. One doesn't even have to try. Automatically the name of the Lord will start repeating itself as one goes on such a pilgrimage. So through this journey, facing the struggle, one cultivates surrender and reliance on God. Perhaps uh, even we begging our food, staying in pilgrim rest houses, walking on a narrow mountain path, all these uh, help us to develop a full reliance on the divine and as we come closer to our destination that yearning intensifies that yearning for because it's it's a symbolic it's symbolic of our spiritual journey as externally we're walking in a mountain or on some path to reach a place of pilgrimage, a temple. Similarly, we're walking, we're traveling in our spiritual life to finally come face to face with who we really are, our divine nature. Some pilgrims will adopt special dress and practices during the duration of their pilgrimage. Perhaps they will stick to a vegetarian diet, observe chastity, do extra japa, recite special prayers, and wear simple dress, perhaps a pure all-white dress or oftentimes ochre-colored dress, which serves as a constant reminder that one is on not on an ordinary trip but on a special kind of journey. The Muslims, when they go on hajj, they wear a special dress called ihram, which is extremely simple, two pieces of coarse cloth, just a, one for the lower part of the body, one for the upper part of the body. That's the men's uh, uni, uh, dress. A king and a pauper will wear exactly the same dress. On the pilgrimage, all are equal before God. Mm -hmm. 
We uh, saw uh, in returning from Kamarpukur by bus, we saw twice the there's a pilgrimage that is done to Tarakeshwar Shiva, a Shiva temple in Tarakeshwar, uh, which thousands and thousands of people undertake every year as a kind of a vow. And they collect Ganga water, water of the Ganges, at Bhaidyabhati, and they carry that water to Tarakeshwar, which is 35 kilometers away. They wear ochre, and they carry the water in pots. Now, those pots must not touch the ground. So for the 35 kilometers, they are not permitted to set those pots down. They, put, they hang them on long bamboo poles, one on the one side, one on the other, and put it on the shoulder. And the more uh, athletic will have big pots, and the uh, less athletic will have small pots, and little bells hanging on the ends of the poles, and uh, chanting and singing all the way. So there we were driving at night, along, and along the side of the road, lines and lines of pilgrims with these poles on their shoulders, barefoot, walking through the night to Tarakeshwar to offer their worship. It was beautiful. Finally, we reach the goal of a pilgrimage, and uh, perhaps there's a mountaintop temple to enter, or a sacred lake or river in which to bathe. Perhaps there is a, it's a village hamlet sanctified by the birth of a great soul. It may be a lonely, isolated place with scarcely any other pilgrims, like Gomuk, the source of the Ganges, or Mount Kailash. Or it may be a remote place yet full of pilgrims, like Amarnath. It may be in a city like uh, Vishwanatha Shiva in Varanasi or Jagannath in Puri. And here we have Darshan, Darshana. This is an important word which cannot really be translated into English. Darshan, literally sight, from drish to see in Sanskrit. A seeing of the divine, a gaining the blessings of the divine, coming into the presence of the divine. We have darshan of a great saint, darshan of a deity in the temple, darshan of a holy river or mountain, and darshan within in spiritual vision. Darshan suggests both perception and reception. That is, we perceive the divine and we also receive that divine grace through that perception, through that communion. So this is darshan. I'd like to read a somewhat lengthy uh, excerpt of, from Sister Niverita's writings about Swami Vivekananda's pilgrimage to Amarnath. Amarnath is, as probably everyone knows, the great uh, place of pilgrimage in Kashmir where there is an ice lingam, an emblem of Shiva made of ice in a, re in a mountain cave high up in the mountains which is very difficult to reach. And Swami Vivekananda had a profound experience there. And this description of Niveritas captures something of the austerity and again the ecstasy of the pilgrimage, what a traditional pilgrimage is like. So this is, I believe, from the Master as I saw him.
Through scenes of indescribable beauty, three thousand of us ascended the valleys that opened before us as we went. The first day we camped in a pine wood. The next we had passed the snow line and pitched our tents beside a frozen river. That night the great campfire was made of juniper, and the next evening, at still greater heights, the servants had to wander many miles in search of this scanty fuel. At last the regular pathway came to an end, and we had to scramble up and down along goat paths on the face of steep declivities till we reached the boulder-strewn gorge in which the cave of Amarnath was situated. As we ascended this, we had before us the snow peaks covered with a white veil, newly fallen, and in the cave itself, in a niche never reached by sunlight, shone the great ice lingam that must have seemed to the awestruck peasants who first came upon it, like the waiting presence of God. The Swami had observed every rite of the pilgrimage as he came along. He had told his beads, kept fasts, and bathed in the ice-cold waters of five streams in succession, crossing the river gravels on our second day. And now, as he entered the cave, it seemed to him as if he saw Shiva made visible before him. Amidst the buzzing, swarming noise of the pilgrim crowd and the overhead fluttering of the pigeons, he knelt and prostrated two or three times, unnoticed, and then, afraid lest emotion might overcome him, he rose and silently withdrew. He said afterwards that in these brief moments he had received from Shiva the gift of Amar, not to die until he himself had willed it. In this way, possibly, was defeated or fulfilled that presentiment which had haunted him from his childhood that he would meet with death in a Shiva temple amongst the mountains. To him the heavens had opened. He had touched the feet of Shiva. He had had to hold himself tight, he said afterwards, lest he should swoon away. I have enjoyed it so much, he said half an hour afterwards, as he sat on a rock above the streamside, eating lunch with the kind naked Swami and me. I thought the ice linga was Shiva himself, and there were no thievish Brahmins, no trade, nothing wrong. It was all worship. I never enjoyed any religious place so much. Afterwards, he would often tell of the overwhelming vision that had seemed to draw him almost into its vertex. He would talk of the poetry of the white ice pillar, and it was he who suggested that the first discovery of the place had been by a party of shepherds who had wandered far in search of their flocks one summer day and had entered the cave to find themselves before the unmelting ice in the presence of the Lord himself. So such things happen at the great tirthas, the great places of pilgrimage. For one who is prepared to receive it, such things come. There's an interesting anecdote related about Swami Gambhirananda, who was uh, one of the presidents of the Ramakrishna order. When he made the pilgrimage to Amarnath, 
Suddenly, he was a very, very reserved person who wouldn't give any outer expression to emotion or to any kind of spiritual experience or anything like that. But when he came to Amarnath, seeing the ice pilgrim, suddenly he exclaimed aloud, Oh, Thakur has come here. Apparently, he saw not an ice lingam, he saw Sri Ramakrishna sitting there. And several times he exclaimed like that. Then he suddenly he was able to gather himself and kept everything within. But he had that experience. Even if we don't get such kind of an ecstasy, uh, Swami Vivekananda assures us that uh, he, he assured Sister Nivedita, you do not now understand, but you have made the pilgrimage and it will go on working. Causes must bring their effects. You will understand better afterwards. The effects will come. With the modern ease of transportation, a whole pilgrimage industry has come up, which is really an extension of the tourist industry. In India, there are uh, people visit places of pilgrimage, not actually as pilgrims, but as tourists. They won't derive the benefit from the pilgrimage. They won't, the effects won't come for them. They'll, the, when they come to the holy place, they are gossiping and chit-chatting, and they're taking lots of pictures, posing for the camera, buying knick-knacks from the vendors, uh, looking for good food to eat, and all of that. <laughs> Sri Ramakrishna describes uh, such people. He says, Coming to the Kaligat temple, some perhaps spend their whole time in giving alms to the poor. They have no time to see the mother in the inner shrine. First of all, manage somehow to see the image of the Divine Mother, even by pushing through the crowd. Then you may give or not give alms as you wish. Again, he says, when an entangled soul goes to a holy place, he doesn't have any time to think of God. He almost kills himself carrying bundles for his wife. Entering the temple, he is very eager to give his child the holy water to drink or make him roll on the floor, but he has no time for his own devotions. I have to laugh reading this because how many times have we seen in a, in a place of pilgrimage someone making their ch- children bow down and take the water and all that, but are they, do, are they gaining anything for themselves? We, we have to wonder. So the earnest pilgrim, the real spiritual seeker, has no time for photographs. He, doesn't even, he or she doesn't even bring a camera. You know, we've got two built-in video cameras, three-dimensional video cameras right here with stereo sound built in. We've got them right here. So going to a place of pilgrimage, oh, snapping, snapping, snapping. Where are we? Th- we're not thinking of God. We're thinking about, ah, oh, we'll, we'll have to take these pictures to show all our friends. So the earnest pilgrim has no time for that for, or for buying knickknacks. He or she has come to see the Lord himself. He or she will try to feel the presence of the divine and most often does feel, does feel it, does feel something special, and tries to hold on to that special mood, that glimpse that has been attained there. The 
it is a curious fact that at many holy places there are also wicked people, cheaters and uh, come, people who have come to take advantage of the pilgrim, pilgrims. It is almost as if the greater purity and sanctity of the place draws some darkness there also to balance things out. There's a very wonderful story about M, the recorder of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, who took advantage of this fact. He went to Jagannath, the great temple of Krishna in Puri, and there's a tradition of embracing the image of, Puri, of, of the Lord there in the temple. But the priests in the temple, they won't allow it generally. So when he came there, he took a handful of coins and he threw them all over on the ground. And all the priests, they went running for picking up the coins. In the meantime, he jumped up on the platform, embraced the image, and then before they, they knew what was happening, he jumped down again and disappeared into the crowd. So that was M's uh, experience. And when he came back to Sri Ramakrishna and told him about it, Sri Ramakrishna was very happy. And Sri Ramakrishna embraced M, saying, you have embraced Jagannath, now I am embracing you to get, that, to get the blessing. After uh, we, the pilgrim has reached the destination, the pilgrimage, uh, the goal has been reached as it were, but the pilgrimage is not yet over. There is another very important facet of pilgrimage. Sri Ramakrishna explains it beautifully. He says, as cows eat their fill of job, that is fodder mixed with oil cake and water, then sit and happily chew the cud, Likewise, after visiting temples and places of pilgrimage, one should sit in a secluded place and think on and merge oneself in those pure thoughts of God that rose in the mind while one was in those places. One should not apply one's mind to sights, tastes, and other worldly objects immediately after visiting sacred places. Those thoughts of God do not, in that case, produce permanent results in the mind. One should chew the cud, that is, continue to cherish the thoughts that arise in one's mind in temples and holy places of pilgrimage. How can those divine thoughts stay in the mind otherwise? And in fact, this is one of the great fruits of pilgrimage also, to have that cud to chew. Not once, but again and again, we can revisit the places of pilgrimage, relive the inspiration that we got, fix those holy thoughts more firmly in the mind. We can make regular mental pilgrimage to a holy place which is sacred to us and envision ourselves again experiencing that divine mood, the holy thoughts, the special blessings of the place. Pilgrimage may have another wonderful fruit, a, a, a deepening of faith and a destroying of doubt. When we visit a sacred place, we may only realize afterwards that some subtle doubts lingering deep in the mind may be destroyed. Take, for instance, the case of a devotee of Sri Ramakrishna, who has been reading the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna for many years, has been studying his life and teachings, 
has perhaps even been meditating on him as a divine personality. But he has never visited Bengal, never set foot in Dakshineshwar or Kamarpukur. In visiting those places, a subtle doubt about Sri Ramakrishna, we are reading about him in books and hearing about him, but did he actually come or is it just in the books? But when one steps into the room where he stayed for so many years at Dakshineshwar, when one treads on the same ground where he walked in Kamarpukur, that doubt is, it may not have been a conscious doubt, but it's eradicated because there's no doubt. I am seeing the place where he actually walked. I'm sitting in the room where he actually sat. And ever after, when one reads the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, one experiences it differently. For one has sat in that same room where, which is being described. One has bowed down in the same temple to the Divine Mother. One has seen that humble mud house where he was raised. Even in this country, we should, as we have mentioned, we do have some places of pilgrimage. So we need not go all the way to India for pilgrimage. We can visit uh, the Ridgely Manor. In California, we have uh, Swami Vivekananda House in South Pasadena. And we have the, the Shanti Ashrama. We also have in New York, Thousand Island Park. These are all places connected with Swami Vivekananda. And there is a house in Baltimore where Swamiji stayed, which some of us have, I haven't, but some of us have visited that house. A visit to a saint, to a holy person, can also be considered a kind of a pilgrimage. To be in the presence of a realized soul is to be lifted into another dimension. It is, a kind, as we said before, the idea of darshan. We gain darshan of a great soul because they have something. They have some kind of power to lift our minds up without even them having to try to do anything. We come into their orbit, into their circle of influence, and we gain something. Perhaps m many of us have met some very senior monks of our order or uh, where, we, where we feel something. That's the, that's the thing. Let us try to feel something. Swami Vivekananda says, Know it for certain that there is no greater tirtha than the body of man. Nowhere else is the Atman so manifest as here. And as I said the, before, the ultimate tirtha, the ultimate goal of all pilgrimage is found nowhere else but right here in our own heart. And the greatest pilgrimage is this spiritual life in which we strive to find the divine within and finally realize that, yes, I am that. We are that divine. That divine is always here. That song loved by Sri Ramakrishna, Dub, 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 rup shagore amar mon. Kunj, 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 kunj le pabi, hridoy majhe brindavon. Dive, 
Dive, dive deep, O my mind, in the ocean of divine beauty. Seek, 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 and ye shall find Brindavan right here in your own heart. So Brindavan, the great uh, playground of the Lord, is nowhere else but here. So this is the great pilgrimage of our life, the pilgrimage every soul ultimately has to make, the inner pilgrimage to seek and find the divine, to realize our own true nature, the journey from the unreal to the real, from darkness to light, from death to immortality. I'd like to close with another reading from Sister Nivedita. After Swami Vivekananda's passing, she made a pilgrimage to Kedarnath and Badrinarayan. And she describes the darshan of Kedarnath, the Lord of the mountains, Lord Shiva in the Himalayas, which some of us have made that pilgrimage. And this reading so beautifully captures that mood of the pilgrimage and the thousands of pilgrims. And I think, I hope you will enjoy it as I do. So we'll take up the reading when they're coming to the final approach to Kedarnath. They had traveled from Haridwar to Srinagar over the course of five days, and perhaps another five days travel to Kedarnath. Eight miles further is Kedarnath itself. The road on this final day is terrible, especially the last four miles of steep ascent. About the beauty of the scenery, one could not say enough, but the difficulties of the climb ought not either to be forgotten. It is a dolorous stairway, as hard as life itself, in very truth, as the Panda ruefully said to me, the way to heaven. All this is forgotten, however, when at last we reach the uplands and begin to feel ourselves within measurable distance of Kedarnath. We are now amongst the wide, turf-covered tablelands, and the flowers begin to abound, as in some paradise of Mughal painters. At every step we pass or are passed by other pilgrims. The eagerness round and about us is indescribable. At last comes the moment when the temple is visible for the first time. A shout goes up from our carriers and others, and many prostrate themselves. We press forward more rapidly than before. It is even now a mile or so to the village. But at last we arrive, and entering find that the shrine itself stands at the end of the long avenue-like street, with the mountain and glacier rising sheer behind it, as if all India converged upon Kedarnath as its northern point, and all roads met at the sacred feet of the Lord of Mountains. When we arrived, it was the middle of the day, and the temple was closed till the evening arati. As the afternoon ended, the cold blue mists came down from the mountains, enwrapping everything, 
and one sat out in the village street watching cowled forms in their brown combos, their brown blankets, pacing back and forth through the mist before the tight-shut doors. Suddenly, we were called to see the oddity. Darkness had fallen, but the mists had gone, and the stars and the snows were clear and bright. Lights were blazing and bells clanging within the temple, and we stood without amongst the watching people. As the lights ceased to swing and the arati ended, a shout of rapture went up from the waiting crowd. Then the cry went out to clear the road, and the rush of the pilgrims up the steep steps began. What a sight was this! On and on, up and up they came, crowding, breathless, almost struggling in their mad anxiety to enter the shrine, reach the image, and at last, by way of worship, to bend forward and touch with the heart the sacred point of the mountain. For this half-embrace is what the worship consists of at Kedarnath. They poured in at the great south door, out by the east, on and on, up and up. One had not dreamt the place contained so many people as now panted forward to obtain entrance. It was one of the sights of a lifetime to stand there in the black darkness at the top of the steps and watch the pilgrims streaming in. It seemed as if all India lay stretched before one and Kedarnath were its apex, while from all parts everywhere, by every road, one could see the people streaming onward, battling forward, climbing their way up, all for what? For nothing else than to touch God. It was the second day of our stay when an old man who had been seriously ill for many months reached the place and made his darshana. He had ended his journey and hastened to fulfill his vow within the hour. But scarcely had he done so, barely had he ceased from prayer. Not yet was the rapture of achievement abated when the battle was declared for him to be finished and in the bright morning air, with long, sighing breaths, his soul went forth. Such is the benediction with which the Lord of mountains lays his hand upon his own. Om Asatoma Mrityor Mamritangamaya Aviravirma Edhi Rudrayate Dakshinam Mukham Tena Mampahinityam Om Durjana Sajano Bhuyat Sajana Shanti Mapuyat Shanto Mucheta Bandhebhu Muktaschanyam vimokshayet Om Shanti 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 From the unreal, lead us to the real. From darkness, lead us unto light. From death, lead us to immortality. Light us through and through, O Lord, 
and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. May the wicked become good, may the good attain peace, may the peaceful be freed from bondage, may the freed make others free. Om, peace, peace, peace.